Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the first chapter of the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Let's listen now to God's holy word. We'll be reading the entire chapter beginning in verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore the virgins love you. Draw me away. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, O you whom I love, where do you feed your flock? Where you make it rest at noon? For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. We will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fur. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us here this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the first chapter of the Song of Solomon. As we continue our communion sermon series through this book, and we focus our attention this time beginning in verse 5, where the bride says this, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. She goes on, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. 
My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And we'll, we'll be continuing on into verses 7 and 8, but you can see there that our passage begins on a much different note than when we left off at the end of verse 4. You'll notice in verses 2 through 4 that the emphasis here is upon this amazing love that exists between God and His people as signified here by Solomon, uh, which means peace, and Shulamit, which means peace. These representations that Solomon depicts for us of the Lord and His church, we can say in the light of the New Testament, Christ and His bride, the church. Or even as you see the, the interplay here between the church collectively with this broader group of women that are pursuing the bridegroom and the individual bride and and this singularity and plurality that goes back and forth, you can see that it applies to the individual believer as well. I am my beloved's and he is mine. And of course, though there are different views and we have to be careful to be respectful, uh, I think in many ways, there's, there's nothing that could hinder our understanding of the relevance of this book more than failing to perceive that great theme. That this is not just a relic, a piece of ancient poetry that we can uh, you know, think about and meditate on. The fact is, when we relegate it to the museum like that, as, as some artifact that portrays Solomon's love life, as, the, as if that was something we should be meditating on. Actually, it was a train wreck. But when we do that, we miss... The fact that this is, at least in my own view, the the greatest book of the Old Testament. There's no greater book. There's no more edifying book. There's no book that portrays the love of Christ for His people. There's no book that portrays true faith and true love as a response in the heart of the true Christian and the collective response of God's people with all the saints perceiving His infinite love. This is a wonderful book. It's a beautiful book. And we need, to, we need to grapple with it in its relevance for us. Uh, there, there's so much unbelief in the world of scholarship. So much unbelief in the world of scholarship to the point where maybe as Christians we're tempted to say, well, could a book be written that long ago and still have fresh relevance for me? Could it really be talking about Christ and His church and the New Testament believer here in Southfield, Michigan, Thousands of years later, my friends, be careful with that. Why not? Why not? Why can't an ancient book speak today? Have you forgotten that this is the living and active Word of God that is sharper than a double-edged sword? And it is sharp, and we need to pay attention to it and not dull the blade. But anyway, the the focus has changed. Verses 2-4 through focus on this intimate relationship between the bride, the Shulamite, and uh, her royal bridegroom, but also that collective response, we will run after you. She says His love is like wine and ointment poured forth, and they say that we will remember your love more than wine. There's this beautiful interplay between the individual believer and the totality of the church seeking after and chasing after God in Christ and finding joy and peace and love and satisfaction and ecstasy and unity within 
the body of Christ within the church of God. Unity so that you can look to God as your father and the church as your mother and to your brothers and sisters, the the fellow children of your mother, the church, and there's unity. But oh, my friends, how it changes in verse 5. Oh, how it changes in verse 5. The whole perspective is turned upside down. I am dark. I am dark. And, and by the way, that has nothing to do with her skin color, skin tone, how shallow and ridiculous we are at oftentimes, or certain people are when they read this book. It's clear that uh, whatever her skin tone was, and of course you see people debating these things and black Hebrew Israelite movement, I, I have nothing to say about that, but I can tell you this, the darkness that is portrayed here is explained in the subsequent verse, verse 6, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. Right? So it's the sun that has tanned the skin. That's why it's dark. And it's something she's not proud of. So I hope it's not referring to her skin tone. Right? If, that's, if, if she's saying, don't look upon me because I'm black, and I, that, we don't want to go in that direction, do we? Uh, Dark skin, light skin, these are all aspects of the beautiful creation of God. But what she's saying here is something she's not proud of. So clearly, we can't attribute this to her natural skin color or skin tone. But she's saying, I am dark. And it changes the whole perspective. And really, it's a reality check for these daughters of Jerusalem that she's pointing to the royal bridegroom. She's speaking to them saying, His love is so amazing. It's so great. It's so fragrant and pleasant. And let's run after Him. He brought me into His chambers. And rightly, do you love Him? Rightly, do these other women love Him? She's pointing them in the direction of the bridegroom, even as Jesus' parable of the ten virgins. You can imagine the different virgins. They're all... They're all flocking after the bridegroom and they're an encouragement to each other. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what Revelation describes as those believers, the 144,000 who are virgins, who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And it's a reality check for these daughters of Jerusalem because it sounds so good. Ointment poured forth fragrance of your good ointments, love and peace and joy and ecstasy, it all sounds so good. It all sounds so perfect. But now she brings the reality check. I am dark. It's not all fun and games. It's not just a picnic. The Christian life, our relationship with God in the person of Jesus Christ is difficult. And it's not always that we're feeling so great and just walking on sunshine. She says, I am dark. Understand, to follow this bridegroom means you're not just going to have the mountaintop experience, but you're going to be in the valley of the shadow of death. You're going to be in difficulties and in darkness, and you're going to see much darkness in yourself. You're not always going to be sprinting after the bridegroom, running after Him, loving Him. You're not always going to be that faithful and chaste virgin who abstains from sin and practices righteousness. She says, I am dark. By the way, she also includes an encouragement so that they don't become overwhelmed with despair. She says, I am dark 
but lovely. Again, we're going to flesh these things out, but just in, by way of introduction, you see that she's bringing them back down to reality, that the Christian life involves much darkness and difficulty, but at the same time, she's encouraging them, I am dark, but I'm lovely. This Christian life is worth it, and it's a beautiful thing. So let's consider this. First, the bride's darkness. Now we know from Scripture, 1 John 1, 5, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. But she says, I am dark. And we can all say, I am dark. What is Solomon portraying for us here when he puts these words upon the lips of the bride? I am dark. Well, The illustration here that he provides is the tense of Kedar. I am dark, and that corresponds to the tense of Kedar. And I am lovely, and that corresponds to the curtains of Solomon. So the illustration here, so that we understand I am dark, is the tense of Kedar. Now, Kedar represents the ungodly Ishmaelite nomads who dwelt in the wilderness, the Arabian wilderness, in the deserts. And Kedar actually means black-skinned, although scholars believe it's a reference to the dark goat skins that they would use to make their tents. They were famous for being tent-dwelling nomads with these dark tents in the Arabian wilderness. And so he says, or, or she says, let's, let's keep it that way, I guess, She says, I am dark just like the tents of those ungodly Ishmaelite nomads in the Arabian wilderness. I'm dark like that. Now, these were not beautiful tents. These were not ornate dwelling places. This was uh, not a good situation. Certainly, if, if you're thinking of Solomon's temple and the beauty and grandeur of Solomon's palaces and Solomon's curtains, there's a clear contrast between the darkness and the negative implications of the tents of Kedar versus the beauty and the glory and the loveliness of the curtains of Solomon. So she says, I'm both. I'm, I'm at the same time. I'm dark, but I'm lovely. I'm like the tents of Kedar and yet I'm like the curtains of Solomon. And what a contrast between the people dwelling in the tents of Kedar and the people dwelling behind the curtains of Solomon. Whether you take those to be curtains in the temple that Solomon built or in the palaces where Solomon and his household dwelt, the fact is that if you went inside the tents of Kedar, you would find ungodly, unspiritual, carnal people And inside, behind the curtains of Solomon, either worshipers or members of his household that the Queen of the South saw and marveled at all of the glory and beauty of it, inside, behind those curtains, you would find, for the most part, godly worshipers of the Lord. And so, there's a contrast. I am dark. I'm not always this virgin chasing after the bridegroom, but I've got problems. I've got sin. Let's think of some of the things she's saying here. Again, focusing on the text. Focusing on the text. Uh, She's saying when she says, I am dark, that I am weary. She's speaking of her own weariness because the sun has tanned me. In other words, I've been out working in the sun 
They made me keeper of the vineyards and I was out there wasting and wilting away under the noonday sun. She wants rest at noon, by the way. Switching metaphors later in the text to the idea of a shepherd providing rest for his flock. Another indication that uh, this is not literal, friends. Solomon was not a shepherd. And some people try to say, well, you see, there, there are multiple lovers here. There's the king, there's King Solomon, but now she's going to hook up with this shepherd. You, you see, my friends, we miss the point when we get away from the text. And the text is clearly figurative. But it's pointing to her weariness. She's, uh, in one figure of speech, baking under the hot noonday sun inside the vineyard. And in the other analogy, she's out there like a sheep and she needs rest at noon. She needs her shepherd to lead her by still waters and green pastures and to be a shade at her right hand. She's weary. She's tired. She's fatigued. And my friends, if we're speaking to someone who either we're evangelizing them or they're a new convert and we're trying to explain what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be part of the bride of Christ, isn't it good for us to be honest with people? And to say, you know what, as ecstatic and satisfying as it is, it's also a lot of darkness and weariness, feeling scorched by the sun and needing rest and not always finding it and just feeling fatigued and tired and weary. Isn't that the reality of the Christian life? I mean, let's not be guilty of false advertising. Here, the bride is clearly not guilty of that. She's being honest. I'm dark, I'm weary. She's also saying, I'm afflicted. My mother's sons were angry with me. Biblically speaking, uh, the church, as Cyprian famously said in the early church, ought to think of God as its father and the church as its mother. And ordinarily, those who don't have the church as their mother can't honestly claim to have God as their father because a true Christian is going to gravitate to, to the fellowship of the saints. But the point here is her mother's sons... These are not children of her heavenly father. They're children of their father, the devil, but they're in the visible church. They're her mother's sons. They're children of Israel. Not all Israel is of Israel, and she's being afflicted even by those around her, her peers, even in the covenant community. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards. And so she's being tyrannized. She's being rejected. She's being forced into this role, as it were, and it is a toilsome affliction. We think of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brethren and, and, and laboring and toiling as a slave and then as a prisoner because, well, it wasn't his mother's sons, it was his father's sons, but, but you get the point. You think of David who goes to the battlefield to bring supplies to his brothers and he sees Goliath and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David and he's zealous to slay this giant and his oldest brother Eliab comes to him and rebukes him and accuses him of being overzealous and of just wanting to uh, gaze upon the battle and, and, and just being shallow and, and immature in all of these things. Uh, you think of Hannah when she went to the temple or the tabernacle where the priest Eli was presiding and Hannah's desiring for the Lord to give fruit to her womb and she's praying to the Lord under her breath. And Eli, that godly yet in many ways hypocritical priest, accuses her at that point of being drunk 
put away your wine, you ungodly woman. And she's just praying under her breath. My mother's sons were angry with me. You think of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha, uh, you know, with, with cracking the whip and complaining to Jesus that Mary is being lazy. Mary's not helping me with the work. And here, Mary's just trying to sit at the feet of her bridegroom. There is great affliction that comes to those who prize and value and obey the Word of God. Jesus describes it in Matthew 13, verse 20. But it says, He who received the seed on stony places... That is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now what in the parable represents that affliction because of the word? It's the sun. The sun scorches the plant that is not deeply rooted in Christ through saving faith. And because it has a shallow faith, it's not able to sustain the affliction of the Christian life. The sun beating down, scorching the sun of affliction on account of obedience to God's Word. But this bride, and hopefully these daughters of Jerusalem, uh, are going to have saving faith. And, and what happens when the sun beats down upon a plant that is deeply rooted? Photosynthesis. It becomes fruitful. As it says later, our bed is green. Now again, uh, you know, people are thinking, oh, well, they painted their bed green. My friends, we need, we need to get back to biblical hermeneutics here. Okay, this is, a, this is a poetic expression here. Our bed is green. It's speaking of the fruitfulness of the marriage relationship. And uh, you see that in verse 17. Uh, Paul says the exact same thing in Romans chapter 7. Uh, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but just have to make this point. Romans chapter 7 and verse, verse 2, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as she lives, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. And he goes on, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit unto God. That's speaking of a marriage relationship and children being born. And our spiritual fruitfulness is presented in that way. Well, Paul's just borrowing that from the age-old illustration throughout the Old Testament. Our bed is green. The fruitfulness of our intimacy with Christ. But you can see here this son of affliction... She's darkened by it. And we can easily become jaded by the afflictions we experience. How easy it would have been for Joseph to despair and feel jaded and scorched and burnt by God. God gives me this promise. I'm going to be exalted. And I got burned by God. And I'm burned by my brethren. And how many people leave the Christian faith and repudiate the gospel and leave the church because they got burned in the church? But you see, true saving faith is able to persevere beyond those afflictions on account of the Word. In addition, she says, I am dark, meaning I am convicted of sin. She's convicted of sin. 
They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. She's recognizing here that it's not enough to just blame the brethren. And, and certainly, to, many, to a great extent, the people that we have in our lives. I mean, bad company corrupts good character. There are people in our lives who can hinder us, people close to us, people in our families, our friends, our brethren in the church. We do have a, a real, uh, either a, a, really an opportunity to, to help people or to hurt people and hinder people in their walk with Christ. But at the end of the day, it's on her and she recognizes that. She confesses that my own vineyard I have not kept. I've been neglectful of spiritual duties. I was keeper of the vineyards and I think we are to understand that her vineyard is one of the vineyards, but for whatever reason, she's been more focused on keeping the other vineyards other responsibilities that she's given, and she's not keeping her own vineyard. My own vineyard I have not kept. And this is so easy to do. The more responsibilities you have, especially you get married, you're a parent, you're a spouse, uh, you're laboring in various ministries in the church, outreach and evangelism, uh, you're, you're a deacon, an elder, a pastor. It's so easy to forget, and I can speak from personal experience, this is a verse that is very meaningful for me. I always have to come back to it because there's no excuse. There's no excuse for failing to tend my own vineyard simply to take care of other responsibilities that I may have in the family or in the church. I need to secure my own mask before assisting others. Now, there is a self-sacrifice when it comes to leadership. There's no doubt about that. And we shouldn't just tell our family or our congregation to talk to the hand so that we can have more deep time of med- an extra three hours of meditation in the Puritans or something like that. I mean, there is self-sacrifice. When I administer the Lord's Supper, am I able to meditate individually to the same extent as, say, a member sitting at the table? Uh, I don't think so. And, and God adds His blessing in certain ways for me, and I trust Him in that. But it is a sacrifice in many ways. But... She, she's convicted that she's neglected her spiritual duties. It's not just that she's making sacrifices and juggling a lot of things. She has not sought first the kingdom of God in her own life, in her own heart, in her own experience. And a way to illustrate this, think of Mary and Martha. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha is trying to get Mary to jump in and participate in, in this uh, flurry of business and uh, work around the house to prepare the meal and so forth. But here, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, what if Mary had followed Martha's example? What if Jesus hadn't been there to rebuke Martha, and Mary had been taken away from tending her own vineyard? And what if she had gotten involved with that distracting service that Martha was involved in? What if that had been the case? I think that's what it's describing here. Someone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, who wants to sit at the feet of Jesus, but through temptations is pulled away from that and feels guilty. I've left my first love. I haven't tended my vineyard. Yes, the work of the kingdom and the work of the house and, and, and the work that God's given us needs to get done. We need to be hardworking in every sphere. 
But if we're not walking closely with God, it's not going to mean anything, and our sinfulness is going to begin to pollute and corrupt our service in those other areas, and we're going to become toxic like Martha, where we're just out here angrily and arrogantly condemning people for not being as hardworking as we are. You see, if Martha had sat at the feet of Jesus, as we trust she did later on when she heeded the rebuke and became a a godly servant, an example, if she had done that, it would have been great, but she didn't. And so she was toxic. And that's what the bride is recognizing here. Uh, Ezra 7 verse 10 says this. I, I, I quote this from time to time. It's a great presentation of uh, what a biblical Christian ought to be. It says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So it, it, for Ezra, it began with the preparation of his heart to seek God's law personally. And, and as Paul says to Timothy, take heed to yourself and to all the flock. So take heed, fathers, to yourself, and then as an outflow to your children, to your wife. Mothers, take heed to yourself, and then as an outflow, love your husband and love your children. Pastors, elder, it goes on. We need to take this to heart. She's convicted. She feels dark and guilty. And Solomon elsewhere, in a different genre, essentially warns us of the same thing. Proverbs 24, verse 30. Solomon says, I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. My own vineyard I have not kept. Now you can apply that to laziness in any field or sphere of human life. But the fact is that when we apply it to the spiritual realm in the Song of Solomon, we see that it hits the bullseye. Uh, if we're lazy, the lazy man, the lazy woman in our walk with Christ, don't be surprised if the thorns and thistles begin to choke out the Word and the wall gets broken down and who knows what comes into our life. So she recognizes this. And my friends, this is the key. She's convicted of her sin. She notices it herself. She doesn't need to be even exhorted by the daughters of Jerusalem. She's examining herself And she notices, and she's honest, and she confesses it. And that's the way to overcome this. We're all going to deviate and be distracted. We all have something of Martha in us, even as believers. But it's so important that we recognize that darkness. And it's so important that we warn other people. You notice she's convicted, and then she begins to share it with the daughters of Jerusalem. In addition... I am dark means I am ashamed. Do not look upon me because I am dark. In terms of the imagery, this is so clearly referring to guilt and to shame. Don't look upon me. She's afraid to be seen. She's ashamed of her sin. 
And that's one of the marks of sorrow under repentance. Not that we're overwhelmed with shame, but that we're not boasting. We're, we're not, we haven't forgotten, as uh, Jeremiah chapter 6 and chapter 8 make clear, God's people had forgotten how to blush. She hadn't forgotten that. She's blushing. She's ashamed of her sin. She's not boasting in it. She's ashamed of it. And she's not defensive. She's not making excuses. She's saying, like Peter in Luke chapter 5, um, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Don't look at me. Turn away from me. I'm ashamed of my sin. Uh, woe unto me. Woe is me, for I am undone. For mine eyes have seen the King. My, my lips are unclean. Isaiah chapter 6. She's ashamed. And my friends, when we find ourselves in these situations where Christ, the Son of Righteousness, has exposed our sin, we need to give thanks. Uh, Moses in Psalm 90 tells us that when our secret sins are brought to light, this is a sign of God working in our lives. Psalm 90, verse 8 You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your countenance. Now, we often pray for and desire the light of His countenance because we feel dark. We want the light of His countenance, the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, shine Your face upon us and we shall be saved, Psalm 80. But here we're told that when He does that, that the light of His countenance will reveal our secret sins. So if you're preparing for the Lord's table and you feel overwhelmed with your sin, recognize that the Son of Righteousness is arising and before He heals you with healing in His wings, He first wounds you and exposes the sin that He will then heal. And so she's dark, she's ashamed. But to the extent that she looks to Christ and the daughters of Jerusalem look to Christ that wound is healed. That conviction, that shame is replaced with beauty. Uh, We'll get to Isaiah 61 in just a moment. But we need to look to Christ. We need to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And when we do, and when we confess our sins, we can proclaim Uh, in our private prayer closet, or we can proclaim to the daughters of Jerusalem, those around us, not only am I dark, but I am lovely. Now, by the way, if this was literal, can you imagine a woman going around to other women telling them how lovely she is? Anyway, spiritually, this makes a lot more sense. That we are dark, we are sinners, we are weary and afflicted, convicted of sin and ashamed of that sin. But, she says, daughters of Jerusalem, I am lovely as the curtains of Solomon. In other words, the curtains, the beauty, the glory of that Solomon who was arrayed in beauty beyond his contemporaries. The curtains of Solomon are an illustration of my beauty. Those robes of righteousness of the son of David have covered my shame and given me the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness and beauty for ashes. Again, the darkness of the ashes, the beauty. My friends, this, this runs the whole way through the Bible, this theme. Now, whether these curtains of Solomon are the royal palace or the temple in Jerusalem, either way, they represent exquisite beauty. Exquisite 
beauty of the royal bridegroom and the son of David. Now, in what sense can the believer declare, I am dark but lovely? In what sense are believers lovely? Well, generally speaking, we are lovely by way of our justification. Our justification. And uh, I preached on this not too long ago from Isaiah chapter 61 where the Lord Jesus Christ is anointed to preach the gospel, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And it says in verse, end of verse 2, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, that is, light for darkness, loveliness for this pitch darkness, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. And it goes on to say that they will be clothed, verse 10, clothed with the garments of salvation, covered with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels for as the earth brings forth its bud as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations so that righteousness of Christ he perfectly obeyed the law He suffered and died for the punishment of sin. He rose again, so He cleanses away our sin and clothes us in His perfect righteousness. His perfect obedience and sacrifice. And the ashes are replaced with the beauty. And so He looks upon us and sees that loveliness of Christ. Secondly, in our sanctification, we're told that Christ as our great bridegroom in Ephesians 5 is beautifying His church. He's taking away the spots, the blemishes, and the wrinkles, washing her with water by the Word. Again, where does Paul get this imagery? Is he just really creative? No, he knew his Song of Solomon. He knew the Old Testament. And so by the Spirit of God, Christ is sanctifying us, beautifying us, making us more like Him, making us to to be covered in those curtains of Solomon and to be clothed in holiness, not just justification, not just His righteousness accounted to us legally, but to be clothed in the beauty of holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And thirdly, our glorification. When that sanctification process is complete, when it's consummated at the last day, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we don't know what that's going to be like, but John says we know this, we will be like Him. We will be like Him. Uh, And again, you can't just help but pivot back to the whole paradigm of this book of Song of Solomon. Solomon and Shulamite. What is it telling us? The beauty of Shulamit, the, the woman of peace, is her conformity to Solomon, the king and prince of peace. It's right there embedded in the names that we will be like Him when we are made perfect in holiness. So that's generally the case. When the Lord Jesus looks at His church, He rejoices in our loveliness by way of the imputation of Christ's righteousness in our justification. 
He looks at us and He loves that increase of holiness and obedience in our sanctification. And He can see, as it were, the finished product and He rejoices by way of anticipation in the glorified perfection that we shall become. And that is, in general, when you read this book or when you see God speaking of His people as beautiful, that's what He's saying. But specifically here, I think we can get a bit more particular in exactly what is being observed here when she says she's lovely and then the Lord Jesus Christ follows it up. The royal bridegroom follows it up by saying indeed that she is fair and beautiful. Look at verses 8 through 10. Here's the beloved, the bridegroom responding. He says, if you do not know, O fairest among women. He says, verse 9, I've compared you my love to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. So he is observing her beauty, her spiritual strength, her delicate, meek and quiet and gentle spirit. He's looking at her and he's seeing the spiritual qualities that conform her to his beauty and his perfection. And he's seeing the adornment of godliness, which is great gain. And so you can see here that there's something specific. I think if we can point to one of the aspects I just mentioned, it would be sanctification. That is what is being emphasized here. And in verse 15, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. It is the pure in heart who see God. And here we find her sanctification being emphasized. And that's no surprise for us. We sing the Psalms. We sing Psalm 45 regularly. What is it that this royal bridegroom delights in? What is it that he finds so attractive in his bride? Psalm 45, 10 and 11. Listen, O daughter. Consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty Because He is your Lord, worship Him. So the fact that she hears and heeds His voice, and we're told that the king here is not Solomon, it's verse 6, your throne, O God. This is the divine Son of God. And His people who sing this psalm, the bride of Christ, the church, is to hear and heed His word, to forget their former lifestyle, to forget the ways of this world, to forget their father Adam out of whose sinfulness they've been rescued, to forget these things and to seek Him first and to hear and obey His Word, to worship Him as the Lord and King. So, as you're sanctified in that way, the King will greatly desire your beauty. Uh, We see more of this in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. Uh, He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His mercy. And Zephaniah 3, 17 and 18, the Lord rejoices over His people. Why? Because they put their trust in Him. So here you find 
that it's, it's her response that the king finds so beautiful, this God-given gracious response, that when she finds herself dark, afflicted, weary, sinful, and ashamed, she doesn't respond by going to the flocks of his companions. She goes to him. She comes to Him. Those who are weary and heavily burdened with guilt and darkness. She goes to the Lord Jesus Christ for rest, as you see in your call to worship. That is what Jesus loves. That is the Word that He wants you to, more more than anything in one sense, to hear and heed from Him as your bridegroom. Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I will equip you to obey me with the yoke and the the easy burden, but come to me. Come to me. Come to the Good Shepherd. He will restore your soul. Not His companions, not any alternative, not some rival, not some uh, whatever alternative it is, but come to Him and go to Him, run to Him, and He will restore your soul as your good shepherd. He says, come and, and, and speak to me and ask me and I'll give it to you. And that's exactly what she does. Tell me, O oh, you whom I love. Verse 7, she goes to Christ. She feels guilty. She feels weary. She goes to Jesus. And she says, tell me, O oh, you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon, For why should I be as one who veils herself? Solomon was not a shepherd, but Jesus is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. And she goes to her shepherd. And notice the beloved's counsel. We've seen the bride's darkness, the bride's loveliness. Thirdly, the beloved's counsel. He is meek and lowly in heart. He speaks a word in season to those who are weary. Isaiah 50 verse 4 Christ speaks that encouraging word. He says, in case you just didn't know. Verse 8, if you do not know. In case you were simply unaware, I'm going to remind you. He doesn't rake her over the coals. He, He doesn't condemn her. But he says, in case you were simply unaware, let me remind you of how to find that peace and that comfort and that strength. And that light for your countenance. He says, first, follow in the footsteps of the flock. Follow in the footsteps of the flock. Now, right off the bat, that reminds us that the Christian life, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, it's not not a one-man show. It's not a lone ranger type of uh, a thing. The church is so important. The brethren, the flock. Nobody has a flock of one. There's a flock. It's plural. It's corporate. You need to follow the footsteps of the flock. You are not alone. You need to be in the midst of God's people who are seeking Him. Again, he's reminding her of the earlier verses. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. And so he's reminding her of the importance of the church and of the footsteps of the flock. The well-worn path of those who came before. If you see footsteps or footprints, okay, that indicates that somebody else came by that path previously. 
And so it's not just the the church collectively as it stands today, but following in the well-worn path of those who came before in the church. And, And we see this throughout the Scriptures that the footsteps of the flock This is an imagery that's used for all the main components of the Christian life. When it comes to salvation, there's one name under heaven by which we must be saved. The footsteps represent this one path. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Me. I am the new and living way that paves the path into the Holy of Holies. Salvation involves following the footsteps of the flock. It means as you look to Jesus, you're looking to Jesus surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses who by faith inherited those promises time immemorial since that first Gospel promise in Genesis 3. Salvation. Follow in the footsteps of the flock. Of course, the bride here is saved. But it also speaks of Christian holiness. Uh, Isaiah 35, 8, the King's Highway of Holiness. Jesus in Matthew 7 talks about not just a narrow gate, but a narrow way. It's not just a narrow entrance into salvation. Oh, there's one way to salvation. It's Christ. Oh, I've entered in the gate. But it's also a narrow way, a narrow and difficult path that leads to life. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself take up His cross and follow Me. It's self-denial. It's the cross. It's the way of holiness. Those righteous paths that He leads us in for His own name's sake. The Good Shepherd. By the way, Psalm 23, from the shepherd and the sheep to the table, that's exactly what Solomon does uh, with this first chapter. As we'll see verse 12 tonight, we'll look at the table. Uh, The the imagery is is very familiar if, if we're in our Bibles. So, Holiness, it's, it's this one way of obedience to God's commandments. Uh, in addition, uh, the means of grace. The means of grace. And, and this is so important that God has given us ordinances personally, privately, in our families, and in the church by which we may commune with Him, by which we may come to the Good Shepherd and come to His table. He has given us these ordinances. And sometimes we need to remember this because today... We've gotten away from that, largely in the evangelical church today, even in the Reformed church. We can get away from that, from from the old path where the good way is that gives us rest for our souls. We can forget that Christianity initially was called the way, and that God has given us ways in the church, means of grace, to experience Him, to worship Him, to perceive with all the saints His infinite love, and And you see this most clearly in the Word and prayer. These are the bedrock of the worship service, the bedrock of your private devotional life, of your family worship, and of public worship itself. The Word of God and prayer. Reading the Word, meditating on it, calling upon God in prayer, meditating and seeking the Lord in these ways. And of course, that leads us to uh, the corporate worship and sacraments of the church, which in the Old Testament represented a way, a path, pilgrims on the way to Zion. You might live at any, in a variety of places throughout the promised land, and during those three sacramental feasts in Jerusalem every year, you were following the way 
to Zion, the footsteps of the flock. I think this is probably what Solomon had in mind uh, most specifically here because this would have been part and parcel of the Old Testament Christian life. But, uh, you know, you can read the Psalms of Ascent in the book of Psalms. You can speak of uh, advancing, Psalm 84, advancing from strength to strength in the path of those pilgrims and they all come to Zion where the Lord meets with them. And my friends, this is fundamentally the same in the Lord's Supper today, that He brings us as His sheep along the path, and then He brings us to His table where He meets with us, where He is present to bless us, following the footsteps of the flock. The footsteps of the flock involve opening your Bible this afternoon if you're communing tonight, or well, Everybody should open their Bible. But opening your Bible, meditating on the finished work of Christ, examining yourself, confessing your sin, repenting and clinging to His promises, follow the footsteps of the flock. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's what, in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, that's the footsteps of the flock that he puts before us. The Lord also says, feed your little goats. In other words, there are people that this bride is able to influence. That's true of the church collectively. It's true of each one of us individually. Jesus says, feed my lambs. He says you ought to be the kind of person that can say to your children or say to other people in the church, follow me as I follow Christ. You ought to be the kind of parent or grandparent that, as Paul says to Timothy, follow in that faith that you, as it were, received from your mother and your grandmother, uh, Eunice and Lois, that they can follow in your footsteps. Are you walking with God in such a way that you would want other people in the church to follow your footsteps? Are you walking in such a way that you would want your children to follow in your example, to follow what you're doing. Obviously, we all have sins and we all make a mess at times, but I'm saying fundamentally, are you headed in the right direction such because your children are watching you and other members are watching you and the, the, the dead fly in the ointment. One sinner can do much harm. We need to be very careful, even collectively as a church, what are the footsteps of this flock? Are they such that other people, other Christians, even other people in the world could look at where we're heading and what we're doing and, and it would be good for them to follow in that example in the footsteps of, of the flock? Because this, this council makes no sense if there aren't flocks moving in the right direction. Uh, so we need to feed our little goats. We need to disciple and set that example. Uh, and he says, beside the shepherd's tents. So you've got the flock, which is the church, Psalm 95. You've got the beloved, who is the chief shepherd. And here you have these shepherds, plural, with their tents or tabernacles. Uh, and this, of course, refers to the under-shepherds. As Solomon elsewhere in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 11, he says this, The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. So there are multiple teachers that are proclaiming wisdom. There are multiple shepherds for the people of God, but there's only one chief shepherd, even the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And my friends, we need to be beside the shepherd's tents. The path that leads to the king's table is beside the shepherd's tents. The place where the Lord gives rest at noon, and that's a beautiful phrase. You might feel like you're being scorched by the noonday sun, but the place where you will be given spiritual rest is going to be as you follow that path beside the shepherd's tents. Not rival shepherds, not popes, uh, not uh, substitutes, but servants, ministers, under-shepherds, elders of the church. And the Scriptures are clear that if we don't have this leadership and this teaching, then what happens is we're tossed about with every wind of doctrine. We're unstable in all of our ways. When Jesus in Matthew 9 saw sheep without a shepherd... One of the first things he did was appoint the apostles and train them up. It wasn't just him, but it was also these shepherds' tents. We ought not to go to the flocks of his companions by way of seeking another shepherd other than Christ, but we ought to be beside the shepherds' tents, receiving, as Jesus said, when you hear them, you've heard me. Follow their example. Hebrews chapter 13, I'm I'm bringing it to a close, but Hebrews 13, verse 7, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Verse 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give an account. My friends, be near to the shepherd's tents. And not as a rival, not as a substitute, but as a means by which you can be equipped to seek God and know God more intimately. You need the church, not to be saved, but it's the means by which God strengthens those who are saved and sanctifies them so that they can perceive His love with all the saints, Ephesians 3. And just in closing, there may be some who are struggling with the idea of becoming a member of the church because they say there's too much hypocrisy, there's too much sin, or there's some things I disagree with. I saw him do this and her do that. And there have been people over the years that they struggle to join the church because they see the darkness of Christ's bride. But my friends, the bridegroom doesn't see her that way. The bridegroom looks upon her with all of her darkness and yet... He says that she is fair. She is fairest among women. He delights in her. Psalm 102.14 says that every believer should look at the church even at its lowest point, even when it is nothing but a pile of rubble and dust, and it should be precious to us because it is precious in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the one who died for the sin and the hypocrisy of the church and suffered under the wrath of God for all the foibles of the church says that she's fair and she's beautiful, receive her and be received by her, my friend, what excuse do you have or do I have for refusing to join with the people of God, diligent to enter His rest? Let's pray. O Lord God, Blessed be your holy name, and blessed be the Holy One of Israel, by which you have reconciled us to yourself.
and given us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. We ask that you would bless these things to our hearts this day. In Jesus' name, amen.